I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Kevin Mackett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mackett. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Cheryl Spring from the Wallaroos. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashini and you're listening to Not the Footage. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. And as usual, we've got a great guest lined up for you. And that is Greg Downs, who's written the book The First Matildas. Uh, They're known as the pioneers because they're not being recognized as the very first, but they should be, in my opinion. But we'll hear more from Greg later in the show. Anyway, I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. John, it's good to catch up again. Again? Been a couple of weeks, hasn't it? Uh, it's been about three weeks, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think we should start with the Matildas. Okay. Because you mentioned it, and obviously uh, they've just beaten, depending on where you listen to, when you listen to this, they've just beaten France in the as we're recording this. Yep. Yeah. A couple of nights ago, and they've got the Derby coming up against England. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. People are suddenly realising. I'm hearing. Um, how big this rivalry is between Australia and, and England overseas. You're starting to hear foreign people go, I didn't realise that you guys don't really like each other. Well, I don't well we know. do, but it's, when we get out yeah. on the sporting field... But it, but it's interesting when you look at those rivalries, there's usually one nation dislikes the other one far more. Like Scotland dislikes England far more than England dislikes Scotland. The Dutch dislike Germans far more than the Germans dislike the Dutch. I think probably the invading ki- places does that. Yeah, I think I think the Aussies probably don't like the Kiwis more than the Kiwis don't like us. I don't know, just because yeah. the Kiwis have been so dominant in rugby. So who hates each other worse, the English or the the Aussies? Yeah. Or is that actually one of those ones where it's even that we do? No, I think in cricket, I think Australia certainly seem to get far more het up about it. To me, having been on both sides of the fence, so to speak about it, like the Ashes mean a lot more here than I think they do in England. Unless you Piers Morgan. Oh, <laughs> I am lost for words when you mention that man's name. <laughs> he should be, um, yeah, I think his citizenship should be revoked. <laughs> well, but back back to the Matildas. It, before the tournament, if you had said Sam Kerr won't play a game, you would have thought that most people would have thought, that's it, we're out. Might be a struggle to get out of the pool. And look, when you look at their pool results, it was a great... The two victories were very good, and the loss was very disappointing. I disagree, actually, because I thought the, the win against Ireland was fortunate. Well, yeah. Because those games, they didn't play well, um, and the penalty that they got is was one of those that you see them given, you see them not given. So I thought Ireland were a little bit hard done by in that, but... You know, they got the victory in that. Nigeria, I always thought, would beat them. Uh, and if you talk to anyone that knows me, I was saying that. And I thought it was going to come down to the Canada game. I think the thing I found incredible in that game was, and, and I don't want to take anything away from the Matildas, but Canada were abysmal. Like, I couldn't believe how bad they were as an Olympic champions and having watched them while I was in Tokyo. Yeah. I just couldn't believe it. And then uh, things start to come out that apparently their football association um, put some uh, pay deal on the table two days before the game that they found insulting, and so their minds were elsewhere. And if that is the truth, um, then how stupid are their administrators to do that two days before such an important game? Absolutely. I don't think we... But the, to... that, I don't want to take yeah. anything away because the Aussies did play well, well in that game. And, and let's face it, 
um, once you get to the knockout stages of, of these sorts of tournaments, it, it's all about who you run into at different pay. You know, okay, we've got to the, 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 the semi-final, but we could have, depending on who we drawn, we could have been knocked out at, in that first round of knockout games. So it's very hard to determine. Obviously, they've, they've done well to get to where they are, but get, going out of those knockout games early is not necessarily a reflection of, of how good you are. It's just a, it can be the fluke of the draw. You could, you know. But I think everyone expected, if you, if you look back at it, everyone expected Canada to top the pool, which if well, they had and Australia comes second, which was what was being predicted, then they would have met England in the round of 16 and not Denmark. So, as you say, is it? but that's what tournaments are like. There's a little bit of luck comes your way. Suddenly someone gets knocked out. The thing I find really... But that's why, that's why you, I think we've got to be careful about the criticism of teams that appear to go out early. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I'm not criticising, but no. I, I find this tournament very strange, the way so many of the top teams have gone out early because normally yes you you will get a few upsets along the way but there will still be usually a core of top teams will be there when it comes to the important game you know the last four yeah. usually they're, they're they're always there there might be one surprise in the four well i think for in the case of say hockey when you look at who the top five is in the world, it's no surprise who's playing in the... You know, that, yeah. that pretty much goes... And that's the same in most sports, John, let's yeah, yeah. be honest. I mean, it was good to see some teams that haven't had success before get a little bit, the African teams especially. That's great to see, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I hope, as, as a lot of the African coaches and players have said, that the rest of the world might give them a bit more respect now. Um, because I do think they have been disrespected and people have just said, oh, they're just physical and they just lump the ball. They certainly weren't that. They could no. play football. Do you, do you think that perhaps uh, some of these higher-ranked nations that have fallen out are a bit too comfortable? Like I'm thinking, say, for America and Canada, the US and Canada, um, it would pretty much be like going on holiday to come here because the language is the same. It, it wouldn't be... Uh, uh, it, it could get a bit too relaxy. Well, I, th- I think the U.S., when you see that TV commercial that they put out before they came, I don't know if you've seen it, um, you sort of go, ooh, maybe there was a little bit of karma there. Um, yeah, may- I think, look, uh, the, the U.S. women's national team have always had that air of... Um, Arrogance. Yeah, I was going to say self-belief. No, I was going was, was to be a bit more polite than you. But they've always had that air about them, and I think maybe they just didn't have the quality to back it up, that maybe a few players were just getting a little bit old yep. and there wasn't quite the the combinations that they had in recent years. And as we were talking before we started recording this, sadly that happens with teams. Teams get older and you have that golden generation or that golden period for four to eight years and then it's the next... And you do fall off a little bit. Well, one, one interesting thing that did come out of the fall of the US team um, was the emergence potentially of the... Of the former president, as a soccer coach, football coach, Donald Trump, with his comments, obviously he is a man that needs some sort of <laughs> Premier League club to be in charge of. <laughs> Keep him busy while he's got nothing to do. I think he's seen, you know, Ryan Reynolds and Ted Lasso, <laughs> and he thinks <laughs> I can just slide somewhere in the middle there. <laughs> I mean, the one thing I, I want, I felt John so far, and I mean, I'm going to Sydney this week, so it'll be very interesting, but. 
I found here in Western Australia, it was all, we were very much on the periphery of it. Uh, yes, now the Matildas have suddenly the last weekend, it was very different. But for the group games, and I did go to games, and look, it was the crowds were great. The atmosphere, I've got to be honest, was ordinary. And I asked a, a parent of a player who's played in a previous World Cup, who's also played in other championships around the world, I said, what did you think of it as somebody visiting? And they said, oh, the games were good. And I went, no, 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 I'm not asking about the games. The atmosphere inside the stadium. And they went, disappointing. And it was. And and whoever they had doing the grand announcing and trying to G up the crowd, please, please, please don't <laughs> ever employ them again. It was cringeworthy. It was embarrassing. It was amateur. Just one more thing on the Matildas while we're here. The, the penalty shootout. The other night, which I haven't seen it, so I yeah. Grip grip the nation, Um, and which is great. Uh, Hubris nearly got him. Why would you let a goalkeeper take a penalty to secure your way through to a semi-final in a World Cup? You're you're in a position to win the game. Or at least stay ahead of the ball. You'd be, you'd then have switched it over so that the other team's chasing you, not you chasing them in that penalty sense, right? Or do you let the goalkeeper do it, mate? Honestly, fifth or sixth penalty it was. It would have been sudden death then, wouldn't it? Yeah. And, and. It, yeah, I didn't see it because I was okay. working, so I haven't watched mate, the game. What I are have... all those other players doing there? Goalkeepers go in the goal. Yeah, but the, the thing is, if you look, Patrick Chilavera of Paraguay, I mean, he used to come up, take free kicks and score them and took penalties. I used to take penalties at school as a goalkeeper. Um, not always. Is that because, you're, because you do the long kickouts? No, it was just I, I was confident about it and that I could do them. And when our captain wasn't playing or there was something, if he wasn't on the field of play, I would sometimes take them. I didn't take many. One thing I thought as I was watching, is um, obviously the women don't kick all of them with the same amount of power that the men do. And I thought there was potentially goals that got saved that on the male side of the game wouldn't have got saved because the ball is hit with that much power that no goal has got the opportunity to get to that position. Goalkeeping was great from both sides and from what I what I saw of it, the shootout. No, not having a, st- a go at the standard, so to speak. But it was just interesting that, uh, especially the penalty the goalkeeper took for Australia. I have <laughs> seen that it, one. It, hit yeah. the post. No, she she got saved on the line. Oh, did it get saved? Okay. Yeah. She went straight at her. The girl went like that and got her hand back. But yeah, there was that just, it was like, you didn't hit it hard enough. It wasn't for that particular penalty to go in. But even in the men, John, there's the, there's some that look to place it. Oh, yeah, and there's yeah, some exactly. that look to roll it in. There's some that look to belt it in. It's whatever suits you, you know? Yeah. Oh, that, yeah I just... It, it, there's a thing in my head that goes, goalies go on the goal. You people out there, you other 10 or 11 or 14 or how many, you're paid to take these. Yeah. That's what you're paid to do. And if you can't step up and say, bugger off goalkeeper, this is my job, the coach should be telling you it's your job. Well, I'll tell you a game we were playing over here and we went to a penalty shootout and the coach goes, okay, who's going to volunteer? And there's silence. Mm. And so I went, I'll take one. 
And he goes, let's be serious now. And I was so offended. <laughs> the fact that I'm still telling this story all these years later. This is Gary Lineker, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a special guest joining us and we're sticking with football because he wrote this book to come out for the World Cup and it's called The First Matildas and joining us is the author, Greg Downs. Greg Downs, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, Ashley. Well, no, I'm really pleased to catch up with you and obviously you've written the book, The First Matildas, and I'm sure there's been mixed feedback because it's become a really controversial issue, hasn't it, as to who are the First Matildas? Uh, yes, it has. It's, it's been a bit of a, a controversial topic now for, I suppose, a good, over a year at least or from, you know, um, the media's perspective and football Australia's as well. Because the, although the women have been fighting for recognition for a, a, quite a few years, it's only become more paramount with Football Australia leading into the, to the World Cup, which is currently underway, um, have decided to address or recognize pioneers of the game, but have not done so in the manner of which the women are, of course, considered appropriate. So should I say? So that battle is still, um, ongoing. Yeah, and that was a very well-phrased answer, I have to say. <laughs> but um, how did the book come about? I mean, what made you decide that this was something you were going to write about? Well, I've been involved in um, women's football research for quite a few years now. And I, when I did my PhD, it was based on pioneers of the game. Um, and this uh, – so I, I – I get a lot of enjoyment out of talking to, you know, the women pioneers and the people that were involved in the starting it and, you know, working through and getting it to where it is now. So um, I met uh, a lovely lady called Trixie Tag uh, 18 months ago, um, and she was a member of the 1975ers, as we refer to them, and um, was talking to me about their struggle. What I did know about the tour, I did know historically that, a team went. I didn't know, of course, uh, uh, much about it or any detail. So she was talking to me about, you know, no one's willing, you know, trying to get people to help her, trying to get a, the team to someone to tell their story. So I just finished writing one and I thought about it afterwards and I thought, you know, that's a great story, um, regardless of the recognition side of things, just the, the historical side. And these women now are like, you know, in their 70s and some are in their 80s. So it would be a great opportunity to get their experiences and, uh, you know, write them into the history of the game. So I decided to stick my hand up. No, well, I must admit, I, I found it a really interesting read. And also, you know, it was great to hear some of the names of people I'd never heard of. Uh, and, I mean, I'd be honest, like Pat and Joe O'Connor, I'd never heard of them. And obviously they played a massive part in women's football in Australia. On, oh, it. Yeah, unbelievably so, you know, like Pat O'Connor, you know, if you do some, you know, some simple research, her name will come up. Um, she's been recognised. Um, she's in the Hall of Fame. But Joe, on the other hand, you know, he hasn't been recognised um, and he played uh, just as a significant role in the development of the game here. Um, and yeah, people don't 
they don't know. And outside of the Econis, there's that everyone in that team, no one knows who they are really. And there's so many examples of that, I think, um, around the country of women of pioneers or and some men as well that were involved in the development of the game, but no one, no one, they've never been identified or recognised. Yeah, and I mean, I think we also forget because of where women's sport has come now. And I mean, even if you go back, it was sort of, it was there in the background, say, 20 years ago. But when you go back 50, 60 years ago, um, you know, it was really tough to get anything or even to get any recognition because it was so poo-pooed, wasn't it? It's like, oh, who'd want to play? Who'd want to watch it, you know? Exactly. And I think... Well, it's a male-dominated sport, you know, so women that were trying to play were sort of marginalised and sort of, as you say, they're there, but they're just a bit of kick and giggle. That's not part of what we're here for. Um, so we're not going to waste our time and effort on giving them any kind of resources. Uh, so there was periods, I suppose, in the early 1900s where there's pockets. The 1920s is an interesting period where they had a bit of a resurgence, um, but it fell away again. And, of course, you didn't get any the, – the media and the press, they weren't sort of interested. And if they were interested, it was more of a ridicule more than anything, you know. So, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't very supportive. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the UK, and, I mean, everyone knows – well, a lot of people would know the Dick Kerr ladies team. And, I mean, yeah. they actually raised money for the war effort. But then because they were so popular – you know, the English FA banned women's football from playing on the same venues as the men, and it really got pushed back. And it took them decades to ever get back to where they should have been then, you know, as a result of all of that. That's right. It's Although, it, you know, we I think women in Australia were reading about, you know, what the some of the women were doing in England at that time. Um, though I don't know whether the impact of the ban had a major impact here in terms of women's game yeah. it may have it's hard to say but um here they were forced to play in non you know council regulated fields so they were if they wanted to play that to play in paddocks and all that kind of stuff which 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 they did but um i don't think that ban was lifted really until the no- early 1970s i think you're right yeah i think it was early yeah. 70s yeah yeah that that the you know the premier or the um the FA, the, yeah. The, the FA in England lifted it. So, I mean, that's that's a long time. <laughs> it is indeed. Well, going back to, to your book, and, I mean, obviously, the, the, the interesting thing for people who don't know was, I mean, this first tour was in 1975, and an invitation came for Australia to send a women's team, wasn't it, to Asia to play? Yes, originally um, Pat O'Connor had struck up a relationship with a Charles Pereira, and he was... Um, uh, a member of, I think, of the Singapore uh, Football uh, Club of League. And he originally wanted to, in association with the Ladies Football Confederation in Asia, wanted to get a competition together, but it was initially club-based. So they approached her because she was the captain of the, you know, very successful St George Budapest team in Sydney. So originally it was a, a club competition. So they were they were keen to go. They were going to go as a club. But then that all changed and they come back and said, look, it's not going to be a club thing anymore. It's going to be an international thing. Do you think you could still come? And, of course, that's when Pat's gone, well, 
we've only just started the Australian Women's Soccer Association only been formed in 74. They only just had their first national championship. So they had no national selection process in place. And she said, we, we'd like to come, but you know, there's, we're just, you know, St. George, but it, they said, well, if you can get your approvals, would you still come? And she said, yes. So then they, of course, famously approached the Australian Soccer Federation, the men's organization who were then, of course, recognized by FIFA. So they had to get that approval, which they did. And that then launched the whole, the whole thing then. That's something so I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I think people forget as well is, although back in those times the men's game was run separately from the women's game, and it was for quite a long time, really up until around 2000 when the Australian government and also FIFA wanted the two to come together. But you to play an international tournament as a woman, you still had to do it under the auspices of the Australian Soccer Federation or then Soccer Australia and what is now the FA. That's correct. See, FIFA, see, the Australian Women's Soccer Association, FIFA didn't recognise that. So there's, so to, in order to play internationally, they had to get the FIFA endorsement from the Australian Soccer Federation, which was, of course, the Men's Association. So, and according to, uh, Pat O'Connor, uh, she went with Joe, had a meeting with the committee and they were all for it. They were, uh, they thought it was a good idea and gave them permission to wear the green and gold and the, the crest, the Australian crest, and often they went off and running in, in, in order to raise the funds they needed to to get overseas. So that's that's I think one of the crux, uh, uh, one of the controversial issues that arise because you know that's you know the, the Australian Women's Association was such in its infancy they and no national team was selected, but they didn't have a process. Yeah. So George Budapest formed the 99% of the New South Wales team, which won the first national championships anyway. So they probably would have, if they had a national selection process, would have filled most of the selection spots anyway. And uh, But some people hold that and say, well, it's not a national team if it wasn't selected from, you know, a national representative body. So... I mean, that's the thing I think is a little bit hard. But to me, because if the Australian Soccer Federation at the time recognised it, gave their authority to go, to me, that makes it official straight away. And it was a FIFA, well, it was an Asian Football Confederation endorsed tournament, which means that it would have been endorsed by FIFA as well. So it has to be legitimate. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I do understand why we're having this argument, but it, but to me, the arguments for them being recognised are far greater than those that are against it. I would think, and I see, I think in the book it says it's a chapter called the pub test. You know, if you go down the local pub and you throw these kind of arguments in front of the blokes at the bar, I know which one they're going to pick. They're going to say, well, it makes perfect sense to me that if the FIFA organised, you know, FIFA recognised body at the time gives them permission to play as an Australian 11, they're an Australian 11. And it's a FIFA, you know. Yeah, I mean, the other thing... The other thing that your book actually brings up is that really as a result of this, they then created a selection process at the national championships, that that was decided then that they would pick a team of the tournament. So, in fact, it was always, you could say chicken or egg, whichever way it was. But to me, this was the catalyst for them to come up with something that maybe they hadn't thought about before. They did. Uh, if you look at um, Elaine Watson, who was... Um 
you know, the chair or the president of the Australian Women's Soccer Association for, for many years. She's sadly passed away uh, earlier this year. But um, she, in her book, um, 20 Years of um, Women's Football History, I forget the exact name, but she states that after that first national championships in 1974, they did discuss whether or not to select a national team, but they decided against it because they thought, well, we're not going to be involved in international competition all that soon or, you know, at this point. So they didn't do it. So it wasn't until, I think, yeah, until the following years, following championships, that they then started to pick national teams. Yeah, I mean, there's been as well, I think you, you touch on it again in the book, that there's a team out of Queensland now go, well, hang on a sec, we went to New Zealand before they went to Hong Kong, so we should be the first now. But was that, again, from what I gathered reading the book, I don't think that was an Australian representative team. It was just, from no. my understanding, it was just a Queensland team that went. Yeah, yeah it was a club team. Winner Manly, I think it was, if I remember correctly. Yep, that's right, yep. And they went to... Uh, New Zealand to play, in a, uh, they play club teams over there, I think. Um, I'm, I'm a bit shaky on that. But yeah, but they went to New Zealand, but they weren't, they didn't go as an Australian team. They raised funds through their club and uh, went over and played some games against New Zealand teams. Now, I mean, it appears that one of the issues is that why they're not getting the recognition is because obviously the Football Federation of Australia, as it was then, now Football Australia, decided to recognise and award caps for all the Matildas and Socceroos. And so they've numbered them all, player number one. And so they can't kind of retrospectively go, uh, Matilda, minus one, minus two, the ones that were, you know, sort of before Federation, if you want to call it. Well, they they haven't come out and actually said that, but they've when they did decide to recognise the 70, you know, leading up to the World Cup, a lot of press, so they've decided let's bring the all the pioneers into the alumni, you know, the, the Matilda family. And they offered them recognition, but then as part of that recognition, un- offered them unnumbered caps, which the women didn't uh, take to very kindly. and thought, well, this, this means that you're not, you're not recognised as, as true Matildas, you just recognise us as, you know, we play for Australia, but what about our, why can't we have a numbered cap like all the other Matildas? That's when it went back to Football Australia. That's when they come back and said, while they think they're a national a side of importance, they're not going to recognise them as a true national women's soccer side, which, of course, upset them even more. So they've said, well, we're not prepared to accept that. We want to fight, continue fighting for our numbered caps. So, as you said, Football Australia at the time decided to, well, they drew the line and said that they were going to recognise the number one cap went to Julie Dolan. She was the captain of the side that played against New Zealand in 1979. And then all, all players since then have progressive numbers. I feel for Julie Dolan because she was part of the 75ers as well. She's in a really horrible position, I would think. Yes, I interviewed her for the book and she's very uh, diplomatic and um, she appreciates the, the, the efforts of the pioneers of the game. But she also said that hopefully this will be worked out in the future. But she also said that, you know, she understands football Australia's position in that they drew a line in 1979. 
and then uh, that decision was made. So we'll see how it but, all ends. But, I mean, we've seen that with, with test cricket. I mean, there were some test matches that they weren't going to recognise years ago, and they now have decided that, no, they will, and they will add those statistics. So I, I think there has to be some flexibility. I mean, we were talking off-air, my club in England, Swindon Town, Everyone thought they were founded in 1881, and so they celebrated the centenary in 1981. And then suddenly in the 1990s, they discovered when a certain person wrote a book that actually it was formed in 1879. So they've now adjusted that. They've read the proof and gone, well, actually, no, even so, this was the case. We've got to recognize it. And I I understand they recognize them as pioneers, but it does seem incredibly harsh because this was an international tournament. Yeah, well, there's been some ideas thrown about, about maybe using Roman numerals, you know, preceding yeah. the number or, uh, or, and or re, renumbering, which is, you know, uh, may upset some, some people. But, um, so there's a, yeah, it's, it's still up in the air. And I'm hoping that, um, after this World Cup, um, it'll go back to the historical, com- or historic committee. And they rethink this and hopefully come up with a plan that's going to, you know, suit everybody. I mean, reading the book. Yeah, reading your book, the the girls come across as a wonderful bunch of people. Uh, I mean, obviously they're upset, but did you find any resentment or bitterness or were they still pride more than anything took over that they were the pioneers? And they wore the colours of Australia, and no one can actually ever take that away from them. Pride, and, yeah, pride. They're very proud of what they achieved, um, and they consider themselves to be Matildas. There's no bitterness at all against any of the numbered cap ladies, or say for Julie, or there's. I don't think I ever heard anyone talk negatively about any of the other Matildas or players that are involved. At all. All they want to do is, uh, to be recognised as true Matildas and, uh, are very proud of what they've done. No, I mean, and, and the results actually, we should probably touch on that in that they were initially in a pool with Thailand and Singapore. They got through the pool, but then the arch nemesis New Zealand knocked them off. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. I, you would have, I think talking to Pat or a couple of players, you know, they played, um, club sides, you know, New Zealand club sides, and they knew some of the players that they thought they, you know, so they weren't used to losing. So they're part of that St. George Budapest team. They never lost a game in 10 years. So, of course, here yeah, they're over internationally, and all of a sudden, you know, conditions and uh, some of the other teams. I think Thailand was very well drilled. They were very surprised at the level of fitness and skill of uh, Thailand in particular. And then, of course, our arch nemesis, New Zealand, you can never, you never write them off, can you? So, but you know, third, that's a respectable, you know, position. Uh, and I don't think they were worried so much about where they come really at the end. I don't think anyone, they were, they were, they thought they generally, most of them thought they'd do better because they was just used to winning, but the results weren't all that important to them at the end of the day. They were just happy to be there. And I think the other thing that's a compliment to the quality of the players in that team is that five of them 
made the Asian All-Star team. So again, as you're touching on, you know, this was not a weak side. As much as people say it was a club side made up of predominantly one club, but the justification really when you look is that the selection was good is that five of them made the All-Star team. Exactly. Um, and they were plans for that All-Star team to, to sort of play. I think they were planning to tour Europe, but that never eventuated. So... Um, so that's that's true as well. That's to get nearly half the team into the All Stars is a, is a yeah it's a flag. That's right. Well, Huge. I must admit, Greg, I, I really enjoyed reading the book because I read about people I'd never heard of, some of them, and it was really illuminating. And they did come across as a wonderful bunch of women. I mean, was that the highlight for you, just getting to know these people? Oh yeah, it's great. They're uh, they're a <laughs> they're a fun bunch, you know. Some they're all different personalities. They're all you know. There's you know ladies from from Germany, you know Latvia. There's an uh, an indigenous woman there that um, we didn't know about originally. Uh, the Netherlands, England. Pat O'Connor, Pat and Joe moved back to Western Australia in 1978, and she actually represented the state over there. So she's a she's a lovely lady, and she's going great guns at 81. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's brilliant getting to know them. Yeah, you mentioned Auntie Tarita because, I mean, she was the first Indigenous player, if, if we recognise these, to represent Australia. And again, one that slipped through the net. That's the, that's the other point. That's right, because the lady that's represent, uh, there is a, and her name escapes me, I'd have to go on top of that, uh, the lady that at present is recognised as the first Indigenous player. That's right. Now there's... Proof to say that that's maybe not the case, that Aunty Tarita is the first, and that that creates another whole discussion. Well, not necessarily controversy, but a discussion uh, around who is and who isn't, and is that important or not. But, um, yeah, all those little uh, nuances uh, that come up, you know, when you find when you're talking to all these different women that from so far, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah, to me, that should be celebrated because it shows that the Aboriginal people were involved in the game way back and we didn't know about it and it's great that they are still involved in it. Yes, that's right. That's that's one of the, the the real pluses, I think, from doing this research is finding out about Arnie Torito, formerly known as Stacey Trace, and she's got a, a fabulous history, you know, a very interesting past. And she was in her 30s and had a, a daughter when she toured. So, you know, and she's tour, touring alongside, say, someone like Julie Dolan, who was 14 at the time. So you've got this vast array of ages and nationalities and uh, different, um, you know, people that are uh, in their 30s or working different jobs. And it's, it's wonderful, really. And that's how it all started. I mean, that's was common for women's teams to be made up with, you know, from age groups that were very young to sort of, you know, 30-year-old, for them to be travelling overseas and when people didn't really do a lot of international travelling, it's wonderful. Well, Greg, I've got to say thank you for writing the book because I, I really enjoyed it and it's a great piece of Australian history. So thanks very much for that and wish you all the very best and thanks again for joining us today. My pleasure and thank you very much for having me. It's just great to share the story, mate. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mark Leduca and you're listening to Not The Footy Show.
Well, that was Greg Dans, who is the author of The First Matildas. And uh, great that they are getting recognition in a book because that means their names will live on forever. I read the book. I enjoyed the book. I heard about people, John, I'd never heard of before. A couple of the names I did know about. And, I mean, it's just nice that there are certain people being acknowledged, like Pat O'Connor, who's one of the key players. And she also became, in the book, it tells you that she was the first female coach to ever earn a coaching certificate in Australia. And it's just little things like that that you think are great. And as we touched on there, Auntie Tarita is officially the first Aboriginal player, yet nobody really knew about that until the sort of people started talking about the 75ers. With the, with the focus at, on the Matildas at the moment, and there's a lot of talk about women's sport and all that sort of stuff, that's the sort of story that in the, on the male side of the game they'd have been writing about 1875. Yep. But it's 1975. It shows you how far we've come in a very short period of time. But the interesting thing is if you look at other sports, sometimes you'll find, so hockey, women were playing internationals way ahead yeah, of men. Yeah. So there's a sport where the women were way ahead of them. Um, and so, you know, some sports, it's, it is like that, and others, it, it's not. So it's, you know, I think it depended on the attitude of the, the times or the people or the attitude towards the sport, because let's not forget, you know, that women weren't allowed to play football because it was deemed that it would make them infertile by if they played it. I mean, how the hell they got that, I don't know. I've uh, been cleaning up. My, my parents' house and um, picking up bits of memorabilia and stuff, and I've got a, I picked up a photo, a couple of photo albums that were my grandfather's, and there's photos there from the 1920s. There's two photos of women playing hockey at Richmond Hockey Club, which I'm assuming is down, would have been down here in Fremantle. Wow. The photo was developed. It has nothing written on the back, but the photo was developed in Fremantle. And the skirts and the blouses that these women are wearing. I'll, I'll have to post it on one of the... Yeah, you should. But I mean, let's how, not, do let's... You, how do you walk around in that stuff, let alone run and chase the hockey ball? But look at the old swimming uniforms. And I mean, even then, if you look at the men's shorts that they used to play, oh, yeah. you know, that were down to their knees. In fact, talking about that, I was uh, the reason I didn't watch the game that the week I was busy with the boxing for four days. Mm, yeah. And um, one of the girls there got in a bit of trouble because apparently her shorts weren't long enough. And she was going, I have measured from my knee to the top of my thigh and my shorts come down beyond the halfway point. And it was quite an interesting <laughs> conversation. But, I mean, I were just they, think... Were they sort of shorts that you looked at and went, oh, they're a bit short? No, they, they were weren't... nothing like that. Yeah. They were... They were like, I, did, like I didn't shorts. even notice it. Okay. And I'm thinking... You would. Ser- you would have had the if, they, if they'd have been hot pants, you wouldn't notice. But, I mean, seriously, I just think sometimes things like that, it's like, does it really matter? Oh, yeah. Oh, they have to have some sorts of rules and regulations. Yeah, but they weren't short shorts. They yeah. were still long, and I thought they were at least halfway down her thigh. I mean, she might have pulled her shorts up a little bit, and they might have gone past the halfway. I don't know, but it just seemed a bit petty Look, to me. It's been a lot about Matildas lately in this country, um, and... Perhaps rightly so. Uh, but there's been a lot of other sport going on that's just completely been missed. We had the Avon Descent here, the local yep. um, Whitewood, which we talked yep. about on, on the show in previous years. That was on, and that's usually a reasonably publicly profiled event in WA. Yep. It's a big sort of under the radar. Lost. No one no yep. lost. Uh, we've had the, the netballers win the World Cup for the seventh. Time or something. something like that. I think they've only lost it amount. three times, is it? I think. Yeah, it's not many. Not many. Yeah. Uh, so and and a, a, a World Cup that 
uh, featured a couple of teams that were outside of the ones that we traditionally think of as powerhouses within the sport. Um, and of course, I mean, normally at this time of the year, everything gets drowned out by the AFL and the NRL, and, the, and they're getting drowned out. Yeah, uh, and there was the Lacrosse World Cup. The Lacrosse World Cup. We there's uh, the Boomers are playing um, uh, an exhibition match in Melbourne on Wednesday night. I know because my partner's uh, grandson is going oh, right. with a father. They're flying over there. Found out today that they've moved the game forward so that people can watch the Matildas on Wednesday night. It was to be a 7.45 start for the basketball, and then this game is fixtured for 8 o'clock. Wow. The football game. They've moved it to 3.30. No, 5. They've moved it two and a half hours. How annoyed would you be if you've got tickets or you're working and you now can't go? Or you've you've come from interstate. Yeah, exactly. And you're playing at 4 o'clock. Yeah. Or whatever the whatever the it's interesting because I I would have imagined when did the, the would FIFA have released the fixtures for the, where the semi final would oh, be they were all there ages ago yeah so the venue and time would have been known for some yep. time yep. yeah I mean it's interesting I, I was doing the boxing and I yeah. I can tell you that that was packed nobody was watching the football I mean the game started while there was the break between the two sessions but the, when the final session started. That room was packed. There wasn't a seat. It was standing room only. Nobody was out there watching a TV. Uh, I think they might have been watching on their phones for the score, but the attention was purely on the ring. And I know you'll be pleased to know that the uh, Mighty Div 3 Crabs have secured their finals position with the game to go. Oh, well done. So I'm very there's happy. There's a lot happening in the world of sport. <laughs> what, I mean, you talked about the boxing. Yeah, I was good. I mean, these were the elite championships and then the qualifiers to go to the Pacific Games to try and qualify for the Olympics. So the standard was fantastic. Oh. And the thing I really like about it, and there was a friend of ours came, never been to amateur boxing before, absolutely loved it because the thing they said that they liked the most is the respect these people show each other at the end of the bat. Not a whole bunch of trash talking. And no, no, there's, there is just total respect. And, you know, you see, and not every bout, but a lot of them, you know, the the um, uh, winner will hold the ropes open for the loser to go, leave the ring. And it's just, it's, there's just an immense amount of respect. And then when you see them mingling afterwards and they're just the camaraderie, I just love it. I think it's great. Uh, we also, it's what sport's about. We also had the, um, the Kookaburras and the Hockey Roos qualified, qualified for, for the yeah. Olympics. First Australian teams or first teams to qualify yep. for the, the Paris Olympics outside of the French teams. Yep. Um, and at least we're not having the penalty corner change that was uh, oh, going to be trialled. Let's not talk about that. That's <laughs> just stupidity on a stick. Um, oh, there was something. I just, uh, can I say something as well, though? I just want to say something, John, about. Um, because the Ashes, again, they're, like, they're just still trying to talk about the fact that they didn't have a beer after the game, which I think is really sad if that, that, that was the case, that a tradition has gone by the wayside. But I, for that aside, what I, I found... And it's I'm, easier to talk about that than making a declaration at the wrong time, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I know. But, but the thing, I, I, f- I found the coverage of it, and I was thinking, you know, when I came to Australia, Kerry Packer had revolutionised cricket coverage. There Sports was, coverage. Yeah, and, and, and Australia was regarded at that time as having the best cricket coverage in the world. And I know that they were taking the feed from Sky, so they had no control over the camera work. And I also understand why we had to put up with the studio stuff was so that it could be classified as Australian content. 
But for crying out loud, it was awful. It was dreadful. And we're seeing the same, I've got to say, with Channel 7 and the football. Make an effort. I mean, it is just unbearable to watch. I, I, I mean, we had SBS went to town, you know, and they had a nice studio and all of that. And, and I just, I just find it really, and Bruce McAvaney, who I have so much respect for, should have stayed retired, should never have got involved in this because he does not know football and it's embarrassing. And I think he's tarnished his reputation. There was some, uh, I've heard some talk of, uh, when it comes to this World Cup, people saying things like, well, this is fantastic. That's, uh, I can't remember the nation's name. That's their first goal in a World Cup. I thought, how'd they get to the, how'd they get to the finals if they've never scored a World Cup goal? This is their first victory in a World Cup. So they didn't win any games and they qualified for the final. It's a world, the World Cup goes for about two and yeah, a half This years. is the World Cup final. It it's one section of a, of a tournament that is much, much larger. A goal in the first qualifying game you play goes down with as much gravitas on your personal record as a goal in the final. It is a World Cup goal. Yep. And the although they will say World Cup finals goals. They may yeah. very well. But the, but it's like Vivian Richards, the cricketer, Sir Vivian Richards. I mean, he always said he was a World Cup footballer because he played in a World Cup qualifying tournament for Antigua. And go. no one can deny that. He did. Yeah. So, you know, he was a dual World Cup competitor, football and cricket. That that was really irritating me at some stages, that little one. And oh, look, there's been quite a lot that's irritated me. I mean, I'm saying it's great the country's got all excited about it, but get the terminology right. Okay. You don't kick goals in football. Just you score you, goals. Just before, yeah, you do. You score goals. Uh, I've heard that a few times. Um, legacy. Oh, God. Because legacies, legacies are—I don't think people have been using the term legacy, but they've been implying the term legacy in in spades across the media at the moment. I heard someone involved in football being interviewed and asked about the legacy, and they went, "Well, when this World Cup finishes, you've got the AFL and the NRL semi-finals, uh, final series. Uh, then you've got the Rugby World Cup." Uh, then the cricket comes around. Then you've got the uh, and Australian Open comes on. It went through another half a dozen. There's a security, security. <laughs> uh, another half a dozen in big sporting events that people will take a lot yep. of interest in, and and their fear that it, regardless of what we think the legacy will be now, it, oh, look, I, I'm I, not I, so sure that this this myth of legacy exists. Anyway. Yeah, I, I I've got to be honest. I I would like to see hard and fast facts as to what they're going to do to ride this wave. And I think it's going to be just like it was in 74, just like it was in 2006 when the Socceroos qualified for the World Cup for the first time and qualified then after, what was it, 32 years? Yeah. or uh, And they weren't prepared for it. And they were, I don't think, as well-intentioned as they were and were saying this was going to be a great event, I think they've been taken by surprise. Oh. And I don't think there is going to be the great legacy that they said yes there's going to be money sloshing around. But if they don't bring the fees down for kids to play football from what they are now, so that, say, it costs 100 bucks to play a year instead of 1500 to 2000 bucks, then there is no legacy. That's a good point. 
I mean, I, I think, look at the legacy rugby had after the last World Cup that was held here. You, you can go through a whole pile of sports, the legacy banners waved and waved and waved during the event. But if you look back and see what that legacy actually was, very often there's a big drop-off in performance. Yeah, and, and, what, and what all you see is the administrators go, I was involved in this, and they go for a better job, and they get it, and then slowly <laughs> they then disappear into the sunset. And, and some players make their name and will li- be able to lick off that World Cup legacy, but I, I don't think that it, it has the impact at the lower levels. You might get a, an upturn in registrations for the next season, but like this person on radio pointed out, that that's still six months away. So I'll, I'll give an example here. We, we've been told that the legacy of the World Cup is facilities have been upgraded, but that's not just for football. They're facilities that will be used by other sports. There are some that have been done for football here in this state. That, well, they had the football yeah. centre built. Yeah. And, but they've had other grounds were, were upgraded. But one of those doesn't have a women's team. So they, they got their facilities upgraded, no women's team. Another one uh, doesn't <laughs> let their women's team play on the first team pitch. So where's the legacy? Well, unless that changes, maybe the, the the true legacy is the the one that happens in the mind, not on the field. Who knows? Some people are on the pitch. They think it's all over. See ya. We'll be back next week.